You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. In John chapter 3, we've been working our way through this conversation with Nicodemus. And if you're there, let's stand together as we honor the, the reading of Scripture together. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. Come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with anyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can, I tell you, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this, this conversation that you had with Nicodemus. Lord, I pray that, that as we reflect on it this morning, that as your word is, is proclaimed, Lord, I, I pray that the, inerr- the errors, the inadequacy of speech, Lord, I pray that you would just work with all of that. That your spirit would would lead and, and guide us into truth. That we might see Jesus proclaimed and rest and trust in what he has done. Lord, we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Maybe seated. One of the questions that comes up in my mind as I read this text, and specifically verses 14 and 15, is the question, how did Jesus understand the Old Testament? Well, some would say that the Old Testament is history. That it is good because we need that history. 
Some would say, and I used to, to say this, that the Old Testament is really good for illustrations. It's good for when you're going through the New Testament, you go back and you use the Old Testament to illustrate things in the New Testament, these stories. The best illustrations come from Scripture. And while that is true, the Old Testament isn't only history. It isn't only used for illustrations. In fact, Jesus is pretty clear about the question of the purpose or what the Old Testament is. After the resurrection, he meets some guys walking along a road to Emmaus, and he walks with them, and he talks with them, and he, and he listens to them. And they tell him about the events that have transpired. They tell him about Jesus, and they end with the empty tomb, and, and they're confused. And at that point, Jesus says this in Luke 24, 25 through 27. He says, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So there we see both in Jesus' rebuke, right? He's his rebuke, O oh, foolish ones, were you so slow to, to believe what the prophets have said? And also his, his teaching, right? He, he, he stopped there and he, he taught them, starting with Moses, moving through the, the prophets, that the purpose of the Old Testament was to point to the Messiah. It was history, but it was redemptive history. Sometimes you will hear somebody say that they understand the Bible in a, in a redemptive historical way. In other words, there is a conscious realization that when we go back and interpret the Old Testament, what we are reading is history that is pointing to Jesus. That is the purpose of it. It is the, the story of how God would redeem his people from the curse of sin that was brought into the world at the fall in Genesis 3. It's this making God making this promise to crush the head of the serpent through the seed of the woman. It is the history of God taking and fulfilling that promise. Now, in our text, in John 3, 14 and 15, we have Jesus not only bringing up the Old Testament, not only alluding to an event or a story, but he really tells us what is meant by it. He's giving Nicodemus the interpretation of that text in Numbers chapter 21 that he should have grasped. Just as he was doing after his resurrection, showing how the Old Testament pointed to himself. Now, it's fascinating here to me how Jesus didn't want to, to end this conversation with Nicodemus without pointing to the, the basis of the new birth that he has spent so much time talking about. He, he's been talking about the, the new birth and how the new birth is, it only comes from God. What is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Here, Jesus is making it clear that the basis of salvation, the basis of, of this new birth is, is nothing short of himself, specifically that the death of Jesus was necessary and anyone who believed in him, who trusted in him, would have eternal life. So to understand this portion of Scripture, we really need to go back and look at the whole story in Numbers chapter 21. Jesus makes reference here to an event in the Old Testament 
speaking of a, a serpent being lifted up by Moses. So in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9, we read this. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe the worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he would take these serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten then will see it and will live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at that bronze serpent and live. So you know the, the wider context here, the, the wandering in the wilderness, this progress toward Canaan that is full of complaining. I mean, it had to be a, a miserable 40 years. Nobody disputes that. They had got into this mess because of their lack of faith. They didn't believe that they could take the land that God was giving them. So here they are traveling in the desert, and they were going by the way of the Red Sea to circumvent the land of Idiom because of the land and its inhospitality to travel. The people became impatient on the way, we are told. We went to Sioux Falls a couple weeks ago, and Desiree and I were, were talking. We wish we would have counted the, how many times CJ asked on the way if we were there yet. At one point, he just got visibly upset after saying, I want to be there, I want to be there. And, and he said, this is not fun anymore. I want to be there now. Right? We get the fact that people were impatient. They wanted to get to the land. They were, had been traveling through the desert for, in, in adverse conditions for a long time. And they started to complain again and again. They started to complain against Moses and God. This isn't the, the first time. They said that God just brought them into the wilderness to die. That they would have been better off as slaves in Egypt. They complained that God was treating them poorly by starving them and giving them bad food. But in an ironic twist, God in essence says, you think you have it bad now, I will show you how bad it can get. And he sent what is described as fiery serpents. I think it's fascinating because it just so happens that we know where the Israelites were at this time now is full of venomous creatures. There are lizards that literally swing from branches of trees and drop on people. There are scorpions that live in the long grass that are difficult to see. So being bare-legged and wearing sandals, this was a, a recipe for disaster. And the, the only remedy known for these bites of these lizards and scorpions is to suck on the wound. You might have heard of doing that for a snake bite. Now, we don't know 
what fiery serpent the Lord sent to plague the Israelites here. Most would say that the description of fiery was more a reference to the bite and the sickness that ensued than was the, the snake or the, the color of it. Some suggested that these were bright colored snakes and others would say that it was because the bite was so painful it caused violent inflammation. It was fiery. It might have been a reference to the fever that was caused by the snake bite. We just don't know. But the overall point here that is made very clear in the text is that there were people that were getting bit by these creatures and they would die. In fact, death was certain. Because we know that the only remedy for the venomous bite was to look at the bronze serpent. But it's important to understand as well that these people realized as they were traveling that they weren't just in a part of the wilderness where there were a lot of snakes or a lot of lizards or scorpions or, or whatever, but they realized that this was God's doing because of their relentless complaining and blaming God for their circumstance. So they realized this. They were sorry for the behavior and the people came to Moses after many Israelites had died, it says. And they asked Moses to intercede on behalf of the people. And Moses did this. And God told Moses to make a serpent, put it on a pole in the midst of the Israelite camp, that anyone who had been bitten by the serpent would just need to look at the bronze serpent on the pole and be cured. Now think about this for a moment. The, the remedy to the problem of the poisonous snake bites proposed by God and enacted faithfully by Moses was really absurd. I wonder if people mocked this as well. I mean, if they felt the freedom to complain about the food that God gave them, don't you think they would complain about this proposed remedy? Notice, something here. If you are looking at Numbers chapter 21, you will notice when the people came to Moses, they asked him specifically, go to God on our behalf to take these fiery serpents away. Did God take them away? No. The people were still getting bitten. And the remedy was to look at the raised bronze serpent to find a cure. The fact is the story is so absurd that the only way that the story makes any sense is if we understand it in a way of pointing these people's faith back to God. Pointing their faith back to God in that it intended to prefigure the raising up of the Lord Jesus on the cross. The sacrifice of himself that saved us from the deadly bite of sin. Now, the, the greatness of the story, I, I think, lies in the absurdness of it. That the lifting up of a, a serpent parallels the death of, of Christ on the cross. It, it points our attention, especially to the, uh, with the reader, with the, the blessing of, uh, of hindsight, uh, 2020 hindsight. We recognize that connection. But we also need to think about 
what God commanded the people to do. To look at the bronze serpent on a pole is the remedy for an incurable snake bite. And we think about the other methods that could have been imagined by the people or that God could have told these people to do in that situation. Do you see what I'm saying? My dad told me not long ago that you have to identify the, the problem to find the solution to it. it. It sounds pretty simple, but it's amazing how many times we either identify a problem and offer no solution, or we just spend our time talking about the problem. Or we try to find solutions to something without actually identifying the problem. The problem here is simple. There are snakes biting people, and people are dying from the bites. Now the question is, is what is the solution? What are we going to do about it? The solution that the people came up with was to ask Moses to pray to God to take the snakes away. But God didn't take the snakes away. Could have God, take the snake? Could have God done that? Absolutely. He didn't. In fact, I don't think anyone would have come up with the solution that God did. From a human perspective, it was a bit absurd. But that is how it is with the Christian faith, isn't it? It is, it is a bit absurd. That's why there's, there's no religion like it, because it's out of step with the solutions that we would come up with for the problem of sin. The world is full of religions because everybody realizes that there is a problem. The fact that the world isn't what it should be isn't new information. The fact that sin exists is not new revelation. The problem, in some respects, has been identified by just about everyone. If you say that the world isn't messed up, that it isn't corrupted by sin, then you're living in a fairy tale. But the solutions are all over the place with one very large similarity. That they're all works-based. Except for Christianity. The Bible is clear. God saved us not because of the righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. That's Titus 3.5. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works that, so that no one can boast. We should clarify just a little bit when we said that what sets Christianity apart from other religions is that Christianity isn't works-based in that those who are saved are not saved by their own works. This is what Paul is saying in Titus 3.5. Not by the righteous things that you have done. You don't do things to merit your own salvation. But Christianity is works-based in that it is Christ's work that is the basis or ground for our justification. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 refers to Jesus as the second Adam. He was obedient where the first Adam failed. We are justified or made right before God, not based on the righteous deeds that we have done, but based on the righteous deeds that Jesus has done. Jesus obeyed perfectly, and therefore we place our faith in him. And his righteousness 
is imputed or given to us, and our sin then is imputed or placed on him, and he suffered in our place on the cross and dealt with that sin. So when we say we're not works-based religion, we need to hear that correctly. Works matter. In fact, our works separate us from God, but Jesus' works unite us to God through the instrument of faith. We said that the real force of this story lies in what God commanded the people to do, to look at the bronze serpent on the pole to be saved. But just think about what people might do in this situation, that they might have been told to do in this situation that would have made more sense, right? If we were coming up with a religion to deal with sin, how might we deal with it? If you're in this situation where you know God is sending all these snakes to to bite you and to kill you, how might the problem be dealt with? Well, they might have thought to create some sort of medicine to offset the poison. I want you to hear a fairly lengthy quote from Donald Barnhouse on this passage. He says this. I think he nailed it. He says, The brewing of potions and the making of salves would have given them all something to do and would have satisfied every natural instinct of the heart to work on behalf of its own cure. But there was nothing of the kind mentioned in the text. They were to cease from human remedies and turn to a divine remedy. The fact that they were not told to make a human remedy is indicative of the greater fact that there is no human remedy for sin. Men have been bitten by the serpent of sin. How are they going to be cured from this bite? There is nothing but death awaiting for them as a result of their wound, unless God himself furnish a remedy. Men rush around in the fury of human religion, seeking a a palliative for sin. They perform all sorts of rites, chastising the flesh. They undertake feasts and pilgrimages, like the man in Israel's camp who refused to look at the brazen serpent but spend his time brewing concoctions for dealing with his own conditions. They are carried off to spiritual death through the poison that is in their being. The man who trusts in religion instead of looking to Christ will be eternally lost. You can just hear some of the Israelites, can't you? When, when Moses said, okay, I've interceded to God on your behalf. I, I've, I've went to him, and now I'm back. Here's what God said. He didn't say he was going to take them away, but he said, I'm going to make, I made this snake. I'm going to put it on this pole, and you're going to look at it if you get bit. Can you just hear some of them? Uh, we asked that God would take away the serpents. Instead, we're supposed to look at one on a pool? That's, that's stupid, and I would be better off to find my own way to actually get out of this mess. mess. There's got to be some potion that we learned in Egypt. There's got to be some salve that we can put on it. Maybe we have some stuff. 
We must be able to do something. But I think that was exactly the point. There's no remedy for the bite of sin outside of God's remedy. Secondly, notice that the ones who had been bitten here were not encouraged to follow a path of self-betterment. They, they, they could have thought about the situation and, and thought that they had gotten themselves into a bad place. They were foolish to get bitten, and now they would take steps to be more careful so that they would not make the same mistakes next time. They could have said, well, let's, let's put signs up. Let's make rules. Don't walk under the trees. Stay out of the long grass. Of course, they could have handled the situation this way, but there still would have been no cure. Remember the, the problem. People were dying from the bite. There was not a, a solution to the problem. Once the, the poison was in them, there was no remedy. They could have went and changed their ways. They could have done things different, but once they were bit... Ecclesiastes 3.15 says this, That which is already has been, and which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. In other words, God calls the past into account. Even if one turns over a new leaf, they say, oh, I shouldn't have done that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live better. I'm going to start off and I'm going to do things totally different. The fact is, God still requires full payment for the transgression that you made before your self-betterment project. Think about it this way. Suppose you own a, a small store and a customer who has not paid his bills for months comes in and says to you that he realized that he has made a huge mistake of not paying his bills, of buying too many things on, on credit and racking up a huge bill at the store. And he's going to, to change his ways. From that point forward, he says, I'm going to buy everything in cash. Of course, this makes your day. And you tell him how glad you are to hear that he is reforming his ways. And then you ask, well, when are you going to start paying the, the bill that you've wrapped up? And he says, oh, don't misunderstand me. I'm, not going, to, I'm going to pay cash from now on. Certainly, if I change my ways and I don't rack up any more debt then you're not going to hold me responsible for the unpaid amount against me, will you? Of course, you tell the customer that that's not how you do business. And that he must start paying off his account in order to continue to do business there. And if he doesn't, there can be no sales, cash or otherwise. This is the same with God. God requires what is past. No one will be cured of the poison of sin by a self-betterment project. Sin is still there. We've already been bitten. And everybody who is bitten eventually dies. Here's another one. The people in the desert that were being bit by the fiery serpents were not told just to, to fight them off. Right? Go get a group together. Take care of them. Barnhouse, again, makes a, a great point here. He says, if the incident had been met after the fashion of our day, 
there would have been a rush to incorporate a society for the extermination of fiery serpents, or SEFS. We would have organized branches, pledge cards, mass, have massive rallies. There would have been a publication office, a weekly journal. We would see the, the photos of heaps of serpents killed by the workers, and the fact that the serpents had already infected their victims would have been played down, but membership lists would have been pushed to the uttermost. I think you get Barnhouse's point. If this would have happened today, people would have identified the problem. They would have created a, a group to deal with the problem. But in our world, it wasn't just solving the problem by killing snakes. It was creating an organization with all of the bureaucracy that goes along with that to do it. It's getting people on board to, to pay for the, the ministry. Human, humanitarian efforts in our day become very complex. And some organizations, of course, are, are better at this than others. But just look at all of the, the parachurch organizations that have seen a problem and seen to fix it and how they work. Again, some are very, some are, some are very good. Some not so much. But the point here, though, is simple. Sin is not cured by a social organization with an agenda to solve a problem. You can't get a group of people together to eradicate the snakes. However the organization was run and actually solved the problem, the solution to our sin lies only in the death of Jesus Christ and the promise that all who trust in him will have eternal life. Many see a close tie between the gospel and social welfare. Some even tie those two things together. Sometimes this is referred to as a, a social gospel. That the gospel is doing good things and solving problems in the world, like feeding the hungry, for instance. A, a noble thing to be a part of. I would say that the message of our passage, both in Numbers chapter 21 and John chapter 3, would say that that is not true. Are we to love the least of these, to care for the poor and those who cannot care for themselves? Absolutely. Is that the gospel? No. In fact, the poor person needs the gospel as much as the rich does. Just as, the, just as anything else about the person doesn't matter, they've all been bitten by the bite of sin and the result is sure death. And the only remedy is Christ Jesus. Notice also, though, that the people that had been bitten were not told to, to pray to the serpent on the pole. Prayer is a, a good thing. Moses prayed, he interceded for the people, but notice that prayer is for believers, and, and people cannot pray their own salvation. You cannot pray yourself into heaven. We're told in the, the scriptures that Christ died for sinners, and this is to be believed. Just take a note of the language that Paul uses in Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The verse doesn't say anything about prayer. It speaks of the mouth and the heart. Some might say, well, we pray with our mouth here, that we make the confession through prayer. And that might be the case for some, but that isn't the point. 
The point is, what is confessed? Clearly in the text, what is confessed is that Jesus is Lord. Our remedies to the problem of sin don't work. They don't solve the problem. Whatever happened to that bronze serpent, by the way? You know? After all the people were cured and the snakes were gone and they traveled to a different place and there was not a threat of that anymore, they carried it with them. Why do you think they kept it? It became a a religious relic. It was used as an idol. Isn't that interesting? The instrument that God used to save them, right? Really, it was their faith in God that saved them. The bronze serpent was the instrument that God used. But that instrument that God used, they kept it. And it became the object of their worship. It was used as an idol. You could see it happening. I mean, it makes, we see, I mean, it shouldn't surprise us. This bronze serpent, when they looked at it, they were cured. They were supposed to understand that it was about faith in God that provides the cure, but some thought it was about the serpent itself. Well, we're told in, in 2 Kings verses, verse 18, 2 Kings 18, 4, that King Hezekiah broke it into pieces, kept it all the way till then. And he kept it because the Israelites had been burning incense to it. Of course, I wanted to point all of these other things out because we need to realize that contrary to every other religious system that seeks to solve this problem, we're still left with the problem. In this case, the only thing required of the dying person that was infected was to believe God's word about the serpent and then to look as God commanded them to do. Believe what God said and look as God commanded In the same way, we are all infected and dying, and the only solution is to look to the cross. We must see ourselves that way, dying just as they were dying. I'm a dying man preaching to others who are dying. Jesus makes it very clear here in John chapter 3 that the, the serpent was lifted up. And it points to Christ. He would be lifted up on the cross and that people would only need to look at him in faith or belief to be saved. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So the question is, is what is it to believe? We could get technical about belief. We have before. But I think an illustration would be helpful. There was a missionary by the name of John Patton. He went to the the New Hebrides Islands and found some natives there. And these natives had no way of of writing their language. So he began to to learn the language. He began create, created a a written language, started translating the, the Bible into their language. When he started translating the Bible, he realized that these people had no word for faith in their language. That's pretty important when you're translating the Bible. You can't really translate it without that word. 
One day, he went on a hunt with one of the, the native guys, and they got a, a large deer, and they were carrying this deer back to the missionary's home, and they were exhausted by the time they, they got there, and they, they put the deer down, and, and as soon as they put the deer down, the, the native guy just flopped into one of the chairs that was on the, the deck of the, the missionary, and he said, it, it's good to stretch yourself out here and rest. Patton wrote down that phrase and used it to convey the idea of faith in his translation. So, for instance, in Acts 16.31, the idea would be, stretch yourself out and rest on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever stretches himself out and rests on the Lord Jesus will have eternal life. In our text... Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone that stretches himself out and rests on him may have eternal life. We must turn away from faith in ourselves and rest solely on Christ. Jesus tells us that his load is not a burden, that he's come to give rest. Perhaps you need to turn away from your trust in your good works, your religious efforts, your efforts of self-betterment, your faith in prayers or things, and look to Jesus. Look to the cross where our sin was dealt with. The problem was dealt with. Rest in that. This is the, the Christian gospel that God has provided his salvation for you in Jesus alone. There's no other name under heaven that can save. So rest today in what Jesus has done for you. It has been finished. It has been accomplished. He finished the work. And now says, look to what I have done. Rest in what I have done for you. Trust in that and you will be saved. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.